Downtown in Business is the fastest growing business organization in the UK. Working with decision makers from over a thousand companies across the country in Liverpool, Lancashire, Manchester, Leeds, Birmingham, Cheshire, Wolverhampton, Newcastle, and London, with more locations to follow. Through an extensive and exciting events program, and through our social media platforms, we connect our members with other businesses who can help them grow. And we engage with senior politicians and officials at local, regional, and national level to promote business-friendly policies. To join Downtown in Business, please visit our website, that's all the W's, downtownandbusiness.com. Why don't you get involved with the fastest growing business organization in the UK? Welcome to episode eight of the Downtown Den podcast. This week, I'm joined by Pete Price, an absolute legend in Liverpool, but he's entertained us right across the country. First as a comedian, latterly as a DJ, he was a contestant in New Faces, which is sort of 70s version of The X Factor. Um, but his personal story, his journey, is even more fascinating. And um, From finding out that he was adopted at a relatively early age through to some really serious challenges with his sexuality during the 50s and 60s, this story is one that will... Um, I think, move you and amuse you in equal measure because he has some fantastically funny stories, but some tragic ones as well. It's an absolute pleasure to get downtown uh, to speak with Pete in the den. And although I've known him for at least 10 years, known of him obviously for many more years than that, there's lots of things that I learned in the 90-minute conversation with him as I say, were absolutely fascinating. Big thanks to Peter for being uh, open, honest. Um, uh, really was uh, an open book in terms of the chat that we had. I'm sure that you'll enjoy this latest episode, the Downtown Den podcast, me, Frank McKenna and Pete Price. Welcome back to the Downtown Den podcast, our latest series, and this is episode eight, would you believe? Uh, and what we've been doing in this series, by and large, is looking back on people's careers, you know, successful entrepreneurs, sports people, politicians, but they've all got a backstory and all got interesting backstories. I'm not quite sure that any of them have got quite as interesting a backstory as the person in the downtown then today. This guy has been, I'm proud to say, uh, a great friend uh, of mine for at least a decade now. He appears uh, fairly regularly at downtown award events, emceeing for us, always does a great job. He's a bit of a Liverpool legend, I have to say. Uh, does a huge amounts of work for charity that often people don't understand or don't get to find out about. Um, and for many years, he was the voice of Radio City. For those people who are listening to this from Liverpool, the guy doesn't need introduction, really. And for those from the rest of the country, you will have seen him on all sorts of different television programmes, from uh, New Faces back in the day, right through to very recently Sky News, GB News, Jeremy Vine, giving his thoughts and opinions on the day-to-day -day news stories. Delighted to be with 
in the downtown zone today, Pete Price. As my last producer would say, that's a long intro. <laughs> that was great. I'm very flattered to be here. And I'm really glad you said that I'm, uh, when I, um, by the way, everyone listening, when I uh, host for uh, Frank at the Downtown Awards, uh, I'm only the voice of God, which is very good. I don't mind being the voice of God, but it's about time I got an award. Just talking about another award. You just say it. <laughs> yeah. You just say um, So, as great to have you here. And listen, you know, you've been good enough over the years to have me on your programmes on many occasions, talking about politics, chewing the fat about issues of the day, our great city, of course, of Liverpool. Um, but what we've never really discussed ever, I don't think, certainly in terms of a public forum, is your career, your backstory, your journey. Because the P price that most people out there will know is this jovial, gregarious character larger than life, always out there, always putting his opinion forward, never short of a word or two. But as with many people who end up being the most resilient, the most successful, you had a bloody tough start, didn't you, Pete? So just tell people how you started out, you know, as much as your backstory as you want to share with us in terms of those early years. Let, let me first of all just plug my book, my autobiography, which you can't buy in the shops anymore. I believe you can get it on eBay for a quid. It's called uh, P. Price uh, Name Dropper. And I'm very, very book. proud. I'm very, very proud of it. Uh, and people have talked about doing a second book. Uh, it's a lot of hard work, and I don't know if I'm up to it anymore, but I was very proud of that, and it was a bestseller. I mentioned that because I will tease the stories, but the stories are in full in there. Because it's a long story. I was, and I shall pot it up, um, I was adopted. I was given away by a woman uh, who I found, who lived in Liverpool, and I found her very easily, which was very strange, because you hear these stories about people looking forever and ever. The best thing she gave, her name was Grace Ann Worry. Uh, she sadly passed away now. The best thing she ever, ever did for me, apart from bringing me into the world, was give me away. And she gave me away to the most wonderful, wonderful woman on this earth, Hilda May Price, and I became Peter Price. My name before that was Raymond Worry. Don't look like a Raymond, do I? No. Um, and that's a story and a half, because when I went to try and find my father, that's a real story. In fact, I think I'd like to finish the podcast off with that story yeah, sure. because it's a great way to finish a podcast. So remind me at the end. So we'll leave that there. Mum was lovely and my dad had a few bob. He had a concrete works. He went bankrupt. He was an alcoholic. Um, he was a wife beater. Uh, never touched me. Um, I just remember one day, my mother going down the stairs. I was seven years old. Never forget that as long as I lived. He pushed her down the stairs. She got rid of him in the end. She had no money. She tried to top herself and realized what she'd done because she had me, because I was her life, because she couldn't have children. She turned her life around through damned hard work. One of my great aunts left her a little bit of money. She bought the Chandler's shop. And believe it or not, she even paid off his debts because she was so angry. And she was old-schooled, just a mum. 
and she was amazing. She worked her socks off and taught me to work and taught me the ethics of, you know, I got my pocket money, but by goodness, I worked hard in that shop. And it was a hard shop because we had paraffin outside. We had um, vinegar by the barrel. So people would bring a bottle and Sally. It was, the, and the smell of that Chandler shop was incredible. I've got to tell you about the paraffin because it's one of the most ridiculous stories on earth. In the backyard, there were two uh, tanks full of paraffin. 2,000 gallons of paraffin in the backyard. Tanks weren't in the ground. They were just there with a little tap and a little uh, lock on it the size of a watch. Silly little lock. And every day, my job, especially in the winter, was twice a day, was to come in and fill the 500-gallon tank in the shop, which was just there on bricks. No health and safety didn't exist. <laughs> and by the way, where the tank was, the 500 tank, my mum would put the fire lighters next door and the wood underneath. So it was all stoked up, totally stoked up. What I haven't told you yet is that next door to the channels was the chip shop with the fat fryers against the wall for the paraffin. You couldn't make this up in any shape or form. So I would carry five gallons, two five-gallon cans, which I filled with a tap, splash, 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 walking through the kitchen, past our cooker, into the shop, clunk, 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 into the tank. I did that twice a day. If that had gone up, there wouldn't have been any West Kirby. There actually wouldn't have been any West Kirby. And then when my mum died, I found out we weren't insured. We weren't insured because we couldn't get insurance. So that was my job twice a day in the winter. It was hysterical. The only day we really worried was we stayed up on bonfire night because we were absolutely petrified of what was going on. Seriously. But, those, but we had locks on the top of the tanks as well, the size of a pen. It was the most ludicrous thing on earth. But the, the shop was just, it was firelighters. It was bulbs that you had to test before you sold them. It was uh, sandpaper. It was fabulous. And the biggest problem we had as well as that was uh, when we had to count all the stock. Uh, for the, the, the yearly uh, accountants. That took two days because it was ridiculous counting stock. So that was the shop. We, I, I was, and my be oh, sorry, and my bedroom was above it. So I'd have gone up first. So everything was <laughs> underneath me. So I, I, in fact, I'd have gone up in a puff of smoke. <laughs> Simple as that. So that was my mum. So that was where I was based. And we lived above the shop. We had a beautiful home when we had money. We owned Vine Cottage in Darman's Green, a beautiful cottage with a couple of acres of land and orchards. And I will be honest with you, I had a terrible time, Frank, uh, mentally with the fact that we'd lost the house. And I lied for years and my friends would drop me off at the house and then I would climb over the house to the shop and where we lived. And I was so ashamed when I grew up and realized how much she'd put up with herself to put me in. I was more ashamed of myself than I was ashamed of her. And I, I learned a huge lesson from that. So she gave me the most incredible values uh, and put me through school. I was highly uh, praised because I wasn't particularly bright, but she helped to pay for me to go to catering college. I wanted to go into catering 
or I wanted to be a hairdresser. I worked for Peter Collinge. I got an apprenticeship with Peter Collinge, who was Andrew's dad. And I worked in West Kirby and also in uh, Cooper's Buildings, which I always remember the smell of coffee when I went to work in Church Street. And I did hairdressing and I went to catering college. And I didn't know which job to do. So I was doing the two of them together. I, was, I had a work ethic. I gave up hairdressing because I decided I was sick to death of hearing women complaining about their husbands and their family life. <laughs> and that's why I gave up hairdressing. And of course, finished up with a late night phone in with women complaining about their husbands. <laughs> and that's where I felt. So I went down the catering route. And then I worked on the ships. I was on the Empress of Canada, sailing out to Liverpool, where Liverpool was alive. Oh, my word. Liverpool was alive. We used to pick the ship up at Bootle. I was a trainee chef. We'd bring up um, to uh, the pierhead to load up the... What year was this, Peter? I, one thing I'm not good with is age. I'm 76 now, so that was when I was 19, 20. So it was that sort that of... That era. That era. When Liverpool was alive. Sadly, they just pulled down the overhead ra- railway, which they had to because of the salt on the wood. But that would have been the greatest tourist attraction in the world. So I was on the Empress of Canada. I was fighting my sexuality. I was very, very scared because I wasn't gay. And of course, the word gay didn't exist. It was homosexual. And there was a lot of gays on the ship and they were chasing me everywhere. I was a bad looking lad. But I really resist. I was really scared. Um, and I didn't like We were doing the Atlantic crossing. And when I realized I had a problem was when a wave went across the funnels and I went, this isn't for me because I was seasick beyond belief. I'm working in the kitchens. And there's a couple of stories which I won't tell you on here now that are in the book that (laughs) what happened to the food. I won't put people off the food. (laughs) But I had, I learned a great lesson there. Uh, There was a guy called Joe, the fish chef. Always remember this. I was up my own backside. I was a catering student. I just passed my degree, my degrees. My, my, I got my City and Guilds 150, 151, 150, 151, waiting intermediate management final. I was, and I went on the ships and uh, the, uh, it's meant we were catering for 2,000 people. I mean, the first day I went down and he said to me, eggs, fry eggs. So I got a little frying pan and frying four eggs. Yes, yeah, right. 2,000 effing past you effing. And the, um, the frying pan was bigger than this room, you know, and it was like, it was, ju- it was crazy. It was the, l- because you've been to Cajun College, but you haven't been in the real world and seen what it was like. But this chef went up to the bar in the kitchen to give me a pint of beer. And uh, they gave him a pint of beer. And I said, I think I'll have half a shandy. And he went, you don't serve stuff. And I went, excuse me, you serve that there? He punched me threw me in the uh, the sink, which once again is as big as this room, for the pots, the grease and everything. I learned the best lesson in life. I never did that again. I became one of the guys. But all through my life, I've had the most amazing lessons. I could actually do a podcast on what life was like at sea. Also, the fiddling that was going down at the docks, and it was huge fiddling ginormous. It was a delivery man taking food off that you'd paid for the chef to, to have some money. You'd paid the store. That's another story. And that. Then I went to work at the Cafe Royal and I was doing all these jobs, but I wasn't happy down there. I wanted to be home. I'd done some 
traveling around. Then I went to the Swan in Wood Street, which was fabulous in those days, still there. The Steering Wheel Cocktail Bar, apart from the Adelphi, was the first ever cocktail bar. I was the assistant manager. I made all the newspapers by serving squid in a basket, scampi in a basket. Nobody was doing it. No one was doing it. I was the first. And it always jumps into my mind. Uh, it was owned by Nancy and Mervyn Kieran, who were Paris and Kieran, a huge company years ago. Nancy was a big blonde woman who drove a pink Rolls Royce. Mervyn had these huge handlebar mustaches and there were two of life's characters. And they were having lunch one day. I can see it right now. And this half-dead rat decided to walk along the bar and drop down in front of them while they were eating their scampi in a basket. That will stay with me forever. I was there and then went to the cabin club up the road, which was owned by Mrs. Windsor, by Brian Gilberson, and by Ian Bell. And Colin Pierce was the chef. He taught me, we were running three restaurants, we had no doorman on, it was the place to go. Nobody got past this little Jewish woman, Mrs. Windsor. Not even Paul McCartney, because his hair was too long, you scruffy so-and-so, out. I learned my trade there, that, so I was going between the two, and it was the days because I had my 21st there, so that was that. One day, I'm running three restaurants, Colin was off, and the band, the Billy Ellis Trio, were playing away, Double bass, the party's over. It was all that fabulous music. We had the most wonderful customers in this place. And the band broke down. And I said, well, let's have a disco. Now, I honestly did not know what a disco was. Billy Butler was working the Mardi Gras. I didn't, I'd never been to a disco. I'd heard about it. And they said, what's a disco? And I said, you play records. I had my chef's outfit, 10 records, and one turntable. And I was shouting, come on, everyone, clap your hands. And it started to work. And they got this, and the band weren't happy because they thought they're going to lose their job. But we worked alongside. And then it came to the crunch. And they said to me, we want you to work for us as a DJ. I went and told my mum. My mum cried her eyes out. And what does a DJ put records on? Don't be so stupid, son. <laughs> you've been playing. You, you, you've been drinking. You know, and she broke her heart. Broke her heart. I then went back. And I, this is the best part of this story. I was earning £15 a week. A lot of money in those days. But running three restaurants and working 16, 17 hours a day. Working my socks off. So they said, we want you to be the DJ. How much do you want to win? Oh, stop it. You can't ask for money to be in a deep. Don't be such. And so I was very coy. I wasn't being cool. I didn't know what to say. They went, we thought about it and we thought 20 quid. Now, I've just been earning 15 quid for working every hour. God said, this is for five hours a night. And I went, what? Because it was so chill. They went, 25, and that's the last <laughs> And I started with 25 pounds, and that's how it started. And that's how you got into that's DJ. Oh, into DJ. Wow, what a story. But I wanted to move away from DJ. Yeah. So that was just the base. That was the start. Because when I was six, I sang at school, Tiddly Winky Woo, with six dancing girls, and I knew that I should be in show business one day. <laughs> so... Let me just take you through that journey that you just very eloquently and succinctly put to us. Because, you know, a lot of people would say that you're a confident guy. As I said in my introductory remarks, you're gregarious. 
um, you draw people in to your personality. It's just the way you are. But if you look at that backstory, how do you get that character and personality? Because that suggests to me your upbringing would have potentially created somebody who's going to be quite introverted, quite nervous, quite shy. You're the absolute opposite of that. So is that something that you consciously fought against? Is it something that is just natural? That's your natural personality and your natural character that's come out? Or despite all of those challenges that you're going through, were you surrounded by people, by family who sort of had that get up and No, go? not at all, because no? they weren't okay. my family, because I was adopted. Okay. So they weren't my people yeah. at all. That's why I went looking later on in right. life, uh, after my mum died, never looked before. I think uh, I have a personality and a little bit outrageous. I am, and nobody's going to believe this, actually very shy on my own. Very shy. and quite nervous of speaking to people on my own. I think because at the age of 12, I discovered, I found out I was a homosexual. I think that also put a front up. That was my way of dealing with it without people because my mom never knew I was gay until later on in life, which was sort of 18, 19, and she wouldn't have understood it. So she used to say, he's just outrageous and he's, he's fun and it's show business because I was wearing the most outrageous. I think that I went out in a pair of hot pants with high heel boots and stockings on and I'm not gay. I was on the front page of the Daily Sketch the day before it went bankrupt. So I've still got a photograph of me standing on London Road. My mum used to say, he's eccentric. <laughs> Thanks, Mom. So I think, seriously, I think the gay thing, because we were criminals, it was against the law. You know, I could go to prison and we lived in fear. We lived in fear of the, 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 the queer bashers. We lived in fear of, of, of being uh, uh, blackmailed. It was a horrendous time. And, and when I discovered the Magic Clock, which was the pub that everybody, the gays went to, it was opposite the Royal Court because that area was the food market, the fruit market, and then we had the Stork Hotel and the Victoria, and, the, and that was the area. Well, we lived in fear because of the Royal Court, because people coming in and out of the theatre, we used to guard each other when we got to know each other, and it was a really small clique. So we'd say, there's an interval, lock the door. We would lock the door of the pub, stop people coming in to look for the queers. You know, it, so it was a very hard way to grow up uh, and a fearful way to grow up because once it was out there, if I told anybody I was gay, homosexual, once it was out there, it could never be taken back. So I think my personality came from that as well. It, it's hard. Uh, it, it's, it's prejudice still exists. Gay bastards. Without any shadow of a doubt. Yeah. Um, but listen, there's been huge. Progress. Yes. And again, because I've read the book, I know that the first reaction back in those days to somebody suggesting that they were gay was, we'll have to treat you. Which seems bizarre this day and age. But treatment included electoral treatment. It did indeed. I, and this is once again very potted the story to uh, the way it is, because. I've said it so many times that I've got it tight now. The age of 12, I went to the doctors. Dr. Lansley is not alive anymore. Very, very handsome man. He looked like Errol Flynn. I always remember that. I went, wow, what a phenomenal... I didn't fancy him, but I thought, what a beautifully dressed man. A fabulous guy. 
the age of 12, I went to him and said, I'm a homosexual. And he laughed in my face. He said, you're growing up. It's, you know, we all go through that. The age of 14, I was strong enough to go back because I wanted to be straight, whatever straight was. I wanted kids. I wanted a world of normality, whatever normality was. So at 14, oh, this one is unreal. He prescribed Valium to cure me. I had the strength of mind to put them down the toilet. This was that without my mother knowing. Then one night, my mother, I was about 17, 18, that sort of age, 18, 19, that, around that age. My mother found a letter. It was a stupid letter. Dear Peter, if you marry David, I'll kill myself, John. One of those. Because what I was doing then, working at the cabin club, my bosses were sensational with me. They'd let me have some time off together, days off, and I'd go to London and be myself and then come back. I hadn't discovered Manchester and the gay clubs there. And I always remember my first train journey to London. Are you ready, ladies and gentlemen? 12 and 6 in old money. Return, return. And I would get off the train, put my coat on my shoulder, and I didn't smoke, but I'd have a cigarette holder and I'd be camp. And that was the way I got it out of my system. And my bosses were fabulous. And I'll never forget them for that. So my mother found this letter and we went to the doctors. And the doctor said, there is a cure. But you have to volunteer. So I volunteered for the sake of my mother. I knew in my heart of hearts there wasn't a cure. But I went for the cure. And what happened that upset me more than the cure was the fact they put me in, it was Diva uh, on the way to uh, Chester Zoo. So it was on the right-hand side as you drove up Chester Zoo was straight ahead and then the hospital was further down. And we were in the missing huts with uh, bars on the windows. Um, it was a very scary place because it was the loony bin. There was no political correctness in those days. It was the loony bin, and everyone knew it was the loony bin. I went in with a false name, because how could I be cured of something that was illegal on the NHS? So it was a real mishmash of what was going on. So I was in there, first of all, for two days with, and I'll never forget this young lady. She'd been in there for 10 years. She was put into a mental asylum because she'd had a baby out of wedlock. And that's what the sort of people were in. I was sane, completely sane. I was in there for the cure. I'm now lying in a bed and trying to sleep with people breathing down my ear, uh, urinating on my bed. I was in with absolute basket cases. I'm sorry to use these words, but those were the words from those days. Then it came to my treatment. <clears throat> and I'll keep this really short because this was really painful. But basically, they had, I always remember, a Grundy TK20 tape recorder. The doctor was there, the psychiatrist, and he talked to me for an hour with the tape recorder running, talked to me for an hour about uh, everything you did sexually, but using explicit language. Just, you know, and it was a lot of what he was saying. I hadn't even tried. I hadn't even discovered all I knew was that I was fighting my sexuality and I liked boys and guys. And, and anyway, so that, so that was an hour. He then put me in a room without any windows and a single bed and a nurse. So a nurse was sitting over there and I'm in the bed. So I'm in the bed with, um, pajamas on. Um, 
and he's got a stack of dirty books, which were hysterical. There were guys in bathing costumes. There was nothing dirty about them. Just good-looking guys in bathing costumes. You go, oh, it's nice. <laughs> so you've got these books. You've got the tape recorder, and that lasts an hour. He asked me what I drank at the time, and I drank Guinness. And there's cases of Guinness. So they give me Guinness. So I'm drinking Guinness. Thank you, everybody. In a room with no windows with this nurse over there. Um, drinking the Guinness, looking at the books, listening to the tape. Halfway through the hour, he injected me. And I, I can never remember what it, well, I can remember it's been blanked off because I don't want to know the name of what it was, which made me violently ill in both ends. And I said, I need to go to the bathroom. He said, no, no, just do it there. So I'm lying in my own excrement and my own vomit and the pajamas. And that lasted an hour and an hour and an hour and for 72 hours without sleep, without anything, without water, I was tortured, totally and utterly tortured with the embarrassment of this nurse over there, which I'll tell you about at the end. The psychiatrist came in. And I wasn't being cured. All I was sitting there was, I'm not going to be seen out alive. I've got to get out of here. I volunteered in. I want to volunteer out. I volunteered out. They weren't going to let me go. I was petrified. They were not going to let me go. I was trying not to get upset. I had nothing left. I had no vomit left. I had no excrement left. I had nothing. I was lying in filth. He then said, well, before you go then, we'll put the electrodes on your penis so that if you get an erection, and I, I, I just wept, which I wept a lot of times there. I said, how could I possibly get sexually excited when the state I'm in and I'm tired, I, I, I wanted to die. I wanted to die. How I got myself out, I don't know. I sort of showered but I just wanted to get out. I had a friend of mine pick me up. I went home, my mum was away for a couple of days. I bathed for about eight hours. My mother never forgave me for a while because I didn't finish the treatment. If I'd have told her what they'd have done to me, because the doctor never told us anything about it, she would have, I think she'd have killed herself. I then woke up three days later in the most terrible state and said, I am what I am in the words of the song. And I then became a gay man who could accept in a way who he was. The end of the story. I was in Manchester in a club called The Rockingham. And I'm a non-violent person. But I tried to stick a bottle in the face of a man at the bar. And the man at the bar was the psychiatrist who had put me through the torture. He actually was gay. So I presume he was getting his rocks off watching me being tortured. The doorman, thank God, stopped me hurting him. But when the doorman found out what was going on, they gave him a good hiding outside. And he was banned from ever coming to the club again. That's it. In a nutshell, years later, and I never told the story, and I went to 
um, there was there was an amazing thing that happened when some soldiers, men and women, went to the court of human rights who were being thrown out of the army because they were gay, and they went to the court at court of human rights and won their the trial. They won the the, the, the hearing, and one of them in the papers said. They even offered me aversion therapy and I went, it can't be going on. It can't be going on. So I went to a, a reporter and a, all of a sudden, I don't know why, but the independent newspaper didn't believe me, but started to follow up the story. When they found it out, it exploded and they did documentaries and I've talked about it. Years later, a lovely man called Roger, who is a Liverpool boy, a Liverpool man now, and is involved with the church, very well-spoken man came up to me in the street and said, I want to apologize. Now, it wasn't him, but he was a nurse that sat in aversion therapy. So he wasn't him, my nurse, but he wanted to apologize on behalf of all the nurses because there were so many gay nurses watching me being tortured, but they can't say anything because they were gay. And this, and he, he wrote me the most beautiful letter. And I wrote about it in my column. I asked him first, would he mind? He said, not at all. And then I put the whole thing to bed. I still have nightmares. I get cross when I hear of people having mental problems through lockdown. I came through that. How the hell I came through that, I will never know. And then when I started working as a comic after the Shakespeare, I started being gay on stage and that was my way of dealing with it and my way of helping everybody else. And me and Larry Grayson and Danny Rue, people like that, we were the forefront for the gay community today. Um, I'd sort new bits and pieces of that story because obviously I've read the book, the way you met you've um, just expressed it then and obviously you can understandably get an emotion. And so am I a bit. Um, so, listen, I'm going to leave um, this part of the story. Um, and when we come back, we move on to happier times. Other than to say, um, because I, quite flippantly, I think, said, no, but it's better now. And it is better now. But we're in 2022, nearly 2023. We've got a World Cup going on where there's a country that will probably still, well, not probably, would absolutely still subscribe to that sort of thing. And it's just frightening. But worse, in the modern society of the UK and elsewhere, we've still got these fucking idiots, and that's what they are, who actually have this thing about homosexuals. Just fucking incredible to me, Peter. And so, you know, hopefully, even if we only get through to one of those idiots or to somebody who knows one of those idiots, to listen to the fact that being a homosexual is the most natural thing in the world. And some of the things that your generation had to go through, and sadly, some people are still having to go through, we just have to remind ourselves on occasion I, I'll, I'll just finish up by saying this. I've just come back from Israel and Palestine, which is another podcast. But there was a man there on, there was a little tour we were on, and there was a man who I liked very much indeed, 
and then found out it was homophobic. And I don't push my sexuality when I'm in those positions. I just there. But I didn't talk about me. I talked about in the in the third party because I couldn't be bothered with it. But he said it's not natural, and I said, but I know somebody that went to a torture farm to, and I told the story about my friend talking about me. And he, went, he chose that. I I rest my case. That's that's where I got crossed, and I'll be controversial now. I remember talking to a, a guy who was black. And he uh, was talking to me and I said, I know a little bit what you're going through. And he went, no, you don't. You chose that. I didn't chose to be black. And that made me incredibly angry. So the point is, the, the, the prejudice out there. There was a beautiful little boy on my show once. I never met him or anything and he wanted to come out. And I begged him not to. I sensed it wasn't right. And he went home, not because of me. He did it himself. And he went home to his mom. She spat in his face and his father punched him and he became a prostitute to live because he was on the streets. And that wasn't so long ago. Yeah. No, we, we've still got so much more to do in terms of this area. But thank you for sharing so candidly that story with us. As I say, we're going to take a short break now. When we come back, uh, we'll move on to what has been a much happier period of Peter's life. Um, but also uh, a much more successful period, I suppose. Um, so stay with us, listen to a couple of ads, and we'll be back in a moment. I'm sure all business owners are looking forward to 2023, trying to identify opportunities that will enable them to grow their network, grow the business, and improve their knowledge. Fortunately, we here at Downtown in Business are hosting two fantastic national conferences which will help you hit all three objectives. On the 9th of February, we're at Edgebaston in Birmingham for our Planning, Property and Regeneration Conference. Speakers include Andy Street, who is the Mayor of the West Midlands Combined Authority, Joanne Rowney, Chief Executive of Manchester City Council, James Lewis, the leader of Leeds City Council, Danielle Gillespie, Executive Director of Homes England, Tom Stannard, the Chief Executive of the Local Authority, Salford, and Tim Johnson, who's the CEO of Wolverhampton Council. Many other speakers coming along as well and more keynote speakers to be announced. So that's our Property Regeneration Conference, Thursday the 9th of February, 2023, at Edgebaston, Birmingham. Following month, the 2nd of March, we're in Liverpool for the Business Innovation and Tech Conference. This is Changemakers Live 2023, some of the most exciting people around the country talking to us about what their ideas are to solve the many challenges ahead as we move into the new year and, of course, beyond. We have Wes Streeting, who's the Shadow Health Secretary, with us. We have Lord Andrew Adonis, the mastermind behind HS2, an advisor at one time to Tony Blair and to Gordon Brown. Jessica Bowles, the Director of Strategy for Bruntwood, is also joining us, as is Colin Sinclair, the Chief Executive of Liverpool's Knowledge Quarter. Ryan Wayne, the Policy Director of the Tony Blair Institute for Global Change, will be talking to us as well, as will Chrissy Wolf 
a social media influencer and somebody who is an expert in terms of the Gen Z generation. So join us for those two fantastic conferences. If you want to find out more about them, all the details can be found on our website. That's all the W's, downtownandbusiness.com. Welcome back to our latest Downtown Den podcast with Pete Price, of course. Uh, and Pete, we've just had a very emotional uh, description of your sort of early years. And you briefly mentioned uh, how you got into the entertainment industry with this stint as a DJ. Um, but I think the career, if I can put it that way, really started at the Shakespeare, didn't it? That's it did where indeed. you got your big break. It did indeed. The Shakespeare Theatre was built in 1880, sadly no longer there. It was burnt down. I know who burnt it down. I won't say on this. Um, but if the Shakespeare was still there now, especially from 2008 when we had uh, Capital Culture, it would have been one of our main venues. It was the gas lamps in the boxes. It was the best place on God's earth. It's, it had the first, apart from the talk of the town in London, the first electronic stage that went from the basement to the ground level up for the stage. And there's a million stories. I work with every major star, but a man called Mr. Silver, who's sadly no longer with us, fabulously wealthy man, a huge, most unbelievable looking man, a very big man, completely bald with a huge nose. And he was multi-millionaire and was walking through London one day and somebody came up to him and said, we're looking for somebody for our film. And he was in the baddie in the man with the golden gun. And they didn't know who he was. And he said at the end of the film, you walk like that and eat. He ate and ate. And I used to sit at his table and wipe the egg off his plate because he wouldn't stop off his tie because he wouldn't stop eating. And he said, I'm going to bring the cast up. of, um, And they didn't know. And he flew all the cast up of the, you know, he just had a small part and this man, Turned out to be fabulously wealthy. So that was who I worked for. And straight away, and he was the one that, uh, well, the actual story was, he was coming down to see me one night at the cabin club. He'd heard about me. And he never turned up. And I had a bottle of champagne, which I couldn't afford. And blah, 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 blah. and then he went to a meeting the next day. And I went to Shakespeare. And I went, to Mr. Silver then, he said, he's in a meeting. I said, well, he let me down last time. He's in a meeting. I said, is he? And I opened the door and went, hey, Listen, I want to talk to you now. Listen, I had a bottle of champagne. I had two girls lined up for you. He went, I'll see you in a minute, Mr. Personality. Get out. And that's how I got the job. And the first night I went on stage and I was wearing snakeskin boots, black trousers, a black silk shirt, a black, a white bow tie, and a shocking pink jacket. And I went on stage and I sang two songs, told two gags, and I was a star. A star was born. For two years after that, I had tables thrown at me, glasses thrown at me, <laughs> and I learned my trade as a star. <laughs> and I learned to be a comic. And I hosted. I worked with everyone, from Tommy Cooper to Dave Allen. And what I would like to do, if we do another podcast, let me come on and talk about the people I work with. Because I promise you, that segment of my life, from the four tops to every major act in the cabaret days. And I've got so many stories. So I'd like to leave that 
for another time because that is a world of its own. And that was in the days of Wakefield Theatre Club and all that. Then I left there. I was doing my radio show on uh, Radio Merseyside. Uh, Jim Black came up to me and said, we're looking for um, a, a local presenter. I got five guineas, which is five pounds, five shillings for a show called Nevermind the Price. It was half an hour. They then doubled it to twice the price and called it twice the price, but didn't double the money. So I was doing my radio show, working at the Shakespeare. And then I thought, after this huge chunk of my life, and that really is so many stories. I went to Manchester to work at Fagan's in Oxford Street, came back, but realized that I was in this comfort zone of these two clubs and it's time to go on the road. So I went on the road as a comic. And the first place I worked was Caffilly in a working men's club. And I've never, this is the expression, dying on your ass. It means when the audience just don't get you at all and don't like you. And I'll give you one very good example. Stanley British, sorry, Stanley Working Men's Club in the Northeast. I walked on stage and went, get off, we don't like him. I hadn't opened my mouth. I hadn't told the gag. <laughs> and I was really, really upset, but I wouldn't get off because you're not going to get paid. So I got the mic, they pulled the mic off me. I went out and they're booing me. I haven't done a thing. I got outside and there on the step is me clothes. They've thrown them out. So I'm, I, And I was new to the business. So I'm going to the police. I'm going to the police. I went to the police station. I said, I've just been thrown out of the club. He said, well, you must be crap. <laughs> and I'm doing this all over the country thinking, I've given up the Shakespeare and Fagans where I was a director. I had dinner. I was treated like God, my friends. And I'm working these shitholes. <laughs> I'm fighting for money, but that's where I learned my, you know, my other side of my career. Then one day, and that is a huge chunk of my life. One day I then woke up and was offered a radio show. And I thought, am I better to be a big fish in a little sea rather than a little fish in a big sea? And that's when I decided to go to radio. I knew I could work around the gigs. And I was doing telly. I had a TV series, which was called The Comedy Connection, which was cancelled. And they cancelled it on Christmas Eve, and that would have been a year's work, and I was suicidal over that. So I learned. So there's so much in that segment of my life. And then radio came into my life, and then that opened a whole door. When I was doing radio, I was then given my echo column, uh, which uh, Alistair McRae believed in me. I'm dyslexic. Punctuation means nothing to me. I don't know. But I write my own column, and somebody takes dictation and puts the column out. And I've been doing that for 16 years. And I love the fact that he trusted me and I love the voice. So that tied up with my radio show was great. Yeah, nice combination. Didn't you do new faces? What about I dreamt that? I was at the Shakespeare. So I'm at the Shakespeare. Les Cox was the producer of New Faces. And New Faces, just to explain to the younger listeners. It was the first ever talent show. That and Opportunity Knocks. It's like the X Factor of its time. It was the first one where they were brutal, but they weren't brutal. But they were brutal. Nina Miskoff. Nina Miskoff, who is on telly now, she used to work for the News of the World. She was a brutal journalist. I'll never forget this. She said about me in the News of the World, Pete Price, who is he? Who cares? (laughs) That was the critique. (laughs) And years later, I worked with her on Jeremy Vine and I sat next to her and she went, hello, who are you? And I went, who is he? Who cares? And did it live on telly. 
which I was thrilled oh, about. Mickey but I Mouse didn't. Even... Was, uh, oh, Mickey Mouse was on Coffee. the panel. Ted Ray was on the panel. There were so yeah. many. Arthur Askin. They were yeah. all on. But this was the ridiculous thing. I went on the show because Les Cox said to me, "Why don't you?" Because they used to do the auditions at the Shakespeare. Why don't you get up? Uh, and do it. I went, I don't want to. I, oh, I was, I was a director at the time. They, by the way, this is why the story is so big. They made me a director ready to go bankrupt. So I take the, and that's a story in half as well. All for the next one for the Shakespeare. But anyway, he said, get up. I was wearing the newspaper suit, which I became the man in the newspaper suit, which I bought for 17 and six in Carnaby Street a thousand years ago before I was even in the business of a fancy dress. So I used to go on stage in the newspaper suit as, and have a newspaper. But inside, what people didn't realize was the gags were stuck in because I could do new stuff because I couldn't remember the stuff. So that was it. So I thought, well, I'll get up. So I got up and I didn't care. You know, when you don't care, you think, yeah. And I always remember my opening line was, and I pulled my pants down and I went, oh, I'm pulling at the bottom. Oh, I'm sorry about this. I, I just had fish and chips in this and the vinegar's running down my leg. That was my opening gag. And he said, you're on on Saturday. Pardon? You're on on, to be stupid. You're on on Saturday. Well, it was unbelievable. I won a couple of times and went through and then was knocked out. Um, but they invited me back to compare. Derek Hobson was the compare. And they invited me back for one of the semifinals with Roger DeCourcy and Lucky Bear, who went on to win the next series. They invited me back. Now picture this. You're a businessman and you lot listening out there. You're directed. You're shown what to do. You're doing this and it's all contrived. For some reason or other, he said to me, Les Cox said to me, just do what you want. Well, how can you tell somebody who's never done telling what they want? So it was the pay price show with anybody else who could get in. Nobody got to look in. I was cleaning the uh, table, dust changing my clothes. I, I play it back. It's fantastic telly, but no wonder they never used me again. But they should have directed me. That's what I couldn't have. But, so that was the new faces. And so that was one of the TVs I did. And I always remember the night I won, I was at the Hamilton Club in Birkenhead, and I got a standing ovation before I even did anything. Which was lovely. And just to put it into context, because as I say, listen, new faces, I grew up with it. So, you know, I'm aware of what a big program it was at the time. 20 million viewers. Exactly. 20 million viewers. This was the day the primetime television yeah. meant primetime television. It wasn't up against the satellite channels and Netflix and all that sort of thing. You basically had three channels and new faces yeah. was the thing that everybody watched. Yeah. Uh, one of the greatest things that ever happened to me was, and, and you say that, one of the also biggest things was the Palladium. Sunday night at the London Palladium was magical. And if you went on there, you were a star overnight. And the, in the early days, if Freddie Starr went on and became a star, a household name, Jimmy Tarbuck, household name. I never did the Palladium, sadly. But years later, Joe Longthorne, bless him, who's, who's lost, he had his birthday show at the Palladium. So would I support him? I went, let me think about that. Yes, all right, what time do you want me? <laughs> and I went down and the Echo did a piece about it. And I got congratulations as if I was a star again, all those years later. And Mickey Finn, another comic we've lost, said to me, and always remember, when you do the Palladium, you'll stand on that Palladium stage and you won't even see the audience. 
you will think Sinatra, Judy Garland, everybody in the world. And you know what? I stayed and watched Joe's uh, part and I drove home that night because I was doing something the next day which was important. I don't even remember the drive home. I had the most ridiculous smile on my face. So we had our ups and we had our downs. And one minute you'd be working the Palladium and the next day you'd be in oh, Motherwell Miners Club. Oh my Lord. There was another lesson I learned. I thought standing in a fur coat with a Rolls Royce as a photo, that's showbiz. Isn't that showbiz? Not in Motherwell Miners Club. When you arrive there and they're booing you as you walk in through the door next to the sandy lamed bowling alley and they locked me in the dressing room for my own safety and I climbed out the window because I thought I was going to be killed. But these are what make you who you are. This is all. And there's nowhere for kids to learn these days. There's no acts like this. I mean, these comics that go on and do 20 minutes, I'm sorry. In our day, you had to do two 45-minute spots and you'd get paid then if you didn't get paid. No, it's a different world. Different world. So in terms of the entertainment side of what you do, and that will be something that perhaps in other parts of the country you will be better known as, you know, I've seen Pete Christ in a, a stint as a comic and so forth. At what point did you start to move into a more serious communication narrative? Because although it's entertainment yeah, in yeah. a sense, you know, you're phoning programmes, you've, you've tackled some really difficult issues. James Bulger. End of story. Yeah, you've, you've done that stuff. Was the, I was going to say, yeah. you've done lots of, but you've done lots of stuff over the years with the police on, on different yeah. issues, different projects. When you're on television now, you will comment on everything from OK Entertainment News, but right through to what's happening in the world of politics. Your commentary in the Liverpool Echo will often reflect what's happening in the city of Liverpool. And let's face it, there's never a dull moment here. There's always something to comment on. So have you always been somebody who was interested in that sort of political commentary, public affairs, or is that something that has just come came with the radio? Life? No, it came with the radio. No. I've always had an opinion, Frank, but it came with the radio. Absolutely came with the radio. Um, that you think that I was on radio basically 40 solid years doing the phone-in and it developed, it went through stages and you also reinvent yourself because I know how much talent I've got and it's very little. <laughs> I have reinvented myself every time. One day I'll tell the truth about myself because I'm the greatest bluffer on God's earth. And what I learned on radio was if you're talking about something you don't know, you take it towards what you do know. I'll never forget one interview I did. There was a woman came in and I said, hi, yeah, yeah just take a break. Notes, notes, no notes. Now I'm not going to say to her, what's it about? Because I'm not going to make a show of myself. Notes, no notes. Does anybody know what she's about? No, nobody's a clue. I am doing an interview with somebody I haven't a clue what she's saying. Not, and we're going all over the world and then she went tablets. Right, we're talking about tablets. We're getting there now. And I did a fabulous interview. And I'll tell you now, Frank, and you will love this story. 
I had to stand in for somebody. I go goose pimply telling this story. I had to stand in for somebody and uh, interview a long time ago a Russian oligarch with three bouncers, three protective officers with him. I hadn't a clue what the hell I was doing. And the boss at the time, Mr. Ingham, said to me, I will feed you every word through your ear and we will pace it so you will be, and that's how you will talk. We had a practice and I did the most amazing interview I've ever done in my life. I do not know one word that came out of my mouth and the fuck off was in the middle of it. It would have come out. And my friends were ringing saying, we honestly didn't know you were that intelligent. <laughs> True story. Brilliant. And, and now, you know, as you start to, as you say, reinvent yourself, and you're, you've been on the Jeremy Vine show this morning. Yeah. Um, you've still got your column for the Echo. You, Sky News. You do Sky which News. Which is worldwide. I Absolutely. love that because all my friends in Singapore yeah. get up and watch it. So I love that. You've got, um, you do some fantastic work with uh, a Liverpool company called The Guide Liverpool, which is a tremendous, tremendous. initiative Absolutely with Jay Hans and his team. And I'm Absolutely. thrilled to bits I'm allowed to work with you as well. Which and, you, is great. and you do stuff with us. So, yeah, you said you're 76. When are you going to start? I'll never stop because it keeps me young. It keeps me alive. I did a charity the other night for Maggie's Place. We raised £60,000 plus. I got £8,000 on the pledges, which is fabulous because it was a community audience. So a nice, ordinary, I, I, I say that with great respect. There was no money people in the audience. And we did Strictly and the volunteers. And it was amazing. I was knackered after that one. Started at six and finished a quarter to 12. I was actually knackered after that one. Um, I love pacing myself, but this week I'm doing uh, a thing for Kim Hughes for the NHS at the weekend. I, I, I truly believe that if you don't work, that I don't want to be one with, I wear slippers, but not tartan slippers. I'm not getting tartan slippers, I'm determined. I've given up late night radio which I'm sad about giving up, but um, I'll just simply say this. To me, since Black Lives Matter, the whole of radio and the whole of conversation has changed considerably. Four hours a night, five nights a week I used to work, you would have to think of every single word that comes out of your mouth because social media is there to pick up I, when I do television, make sure that the Sun newspaper is nowhere near me because I don't want it near me. But that's how you've got to think. And to do a late night phone in all the time, it's really, and I look back at some of the stuff and nobody's ever heard my early stuff. Look back on YouTube. Oh, how did I get away with some of it? Oh my Lord. I just don't know. Just don't know. I'll give you a, I do a gag in my act, which actually is a story from my show. We did the first ever dateline on radio. 
And we genuinely had 10 weddings. And I went to every wedding. And I went with a bottle of champagne to say, thank you, congratulations, Craig. And they were fabulous. We even had a top hat and tails wedding. So there were nice people. No one else was doing it. Sadly, it stopped. And it stopped because somebody else took it over around the country. Somebody got raped on one of the dates. So with the radio, it had to stop. But I've had people come up to me and at the last gay pride march, a girl threw her arms around me and said, if it wasn't for you, I wouldn't be on this earth. My mum and dad met through you. So many, many people, many, many people found them because of me. But this is a story. And remember that Liverpool is a village, not a city. It's not everyone knows everyone. And this guy came on my show. And this is a true story, but I do it as a gag, but it's true. The guy came on and he went, it was night. And Jay Hind, who owns the guy, was on duty that night. So I went, hi. And he went, hiya, how are you? So straight away, I've established he's on my bus. So we've got this established. I said, well, what can I do for you? He said, I'm very lonely, he said, and I would like to meet someone. I think what you do is a great job. And I said, well, I think you've been very brave coming on. I think it's fantastic. And we talked away, talked away. I said, we talked away. I said, have you got any hobbies? He went, Gnomes. It's a pardon. So garden gnomes, collect garden gnomes. Oh, it's a hobby. Yeah, I've got 45. And they've all got names. They're all my friends. Well, I'm starting to lose it, but you can't lose it on there. So I pull the mic down. I'm going, what's going on? What's going on? This is terrible. This I'll go back home. So listen, forget about the gnomes. Love me, love my gnomes. Excuse me, love me, love my gnomes. So I... I'm just in a terrible state with the mic down. So I said, tell me what you look like. He said, five foot. Please tell me you haven't got a red hat and a fishing rod. <laughs> to which he slammed the phone down. Ten minutes later, only in Liverpool, woman from Kirby. All right, Pricey, how are you, lads? How are you? All right, are you? All right. Yeah, yeah. You know, that fellow was just on before. Sink on the bottom. Do you reckon he was homosexual? <laughs> I had five nights of four hours a night of that. <laughs> I remember when I used to be driving home late from meetings. And um, if you needed to be tuned up, you'd stick prices show up. Because the callers and the way in which you handle the it developed stuff into that. It was just yeah. fantastic. Was students just, loved it. Oh, it was just brilliant. It, it became, and do you know what's <laughs> one of the nicest things about the students? So many people have come up to me over the years and said, I got through my uh, dissertation because of you. I got through my degree because of you. How the hell you listen to a program like that and work on something? I don't know. But the audience and you're in business and downtown in business. God bless us. My audience demographics were from 10 to 90. It was the most, nobody in this country had those demographics. And we were getting a million people on local radio. It had never been heard of in its day. And so, and this is the final question I'm going to ask before we finish with the story about when you found your dad. So we talked about you reinventing yourself. You've touched a little on I would describe it as perhaps some frustration, um, but also an, a recognition that the world has changed, the media has changed. But my problem with the media changing in the way it has is that everything now is short, sharp, boom, 
You've got to have an opinion on this. It's got to be black and white. You can't have a compromise. You can't have a mature conversation. You're with us and you're against us. And the problem with that sort of discourse and conversation is that we end up where we are in the country now, which is massively split. Do you think that that is now the inevitable direction of travel and it will just continue? See, print media struggling. Radio programmes are having to shock people. The clickbait stuff that even the Echo are having to get into now just to keep and stay in business. Is that something you're going to have to live with, Peter? Or do you think at some stage, someone somewhere will wake up and say, actually, this is just... I hope you're right, that you, your last statement. But I'll sum it up with this bit. When James Bulger was slaughtered, I would take calls for four hours, which we extended to five hours for two weeks. Everybody was talking about it. It was watered down after that. Everything was watered down. Everything was shock treatment. That went on for months, talking about that child, that beautiful child. I became friends with Denise. I went on the march to keep Venables and Thompson in prison. I am mates with Denise. I'm sad, sad that we're mates because of that. But that, but when James Bulger's grandma, Ralph's mum, rang my show and said, I'm never going to see that angel again, I became the voice of England around the world. It was, it was bizarre. And I'm not trained for that, but it, the point I'm making is, then all of a sudden the shock treatment came in from anywhere. And it was getting to the stage where if somebody had been beaten up at the bottom of our tower, so what? So I don't know. I hope it comes back, but I don't see how it can come back. But it's a terrible world we're living in over that. The shock. The, 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 Twitter's done that. Facebook's done They've all done that because all these keyboard warriors are just there and that's why they've got to work on it. And somebody got prosecuted recently for one of those little faces, which I think is amazing because nobody would have thought of that. So it's sad. I had the best days without any shadow of doubt. And if you, any of you out there want to find out more about me over, go on to YouTube. We won't even talk about the lizard. Find it out on YouTube. It's something else. <laughs> <laughs> it's my last line now, anyway. No, it's not your last no, line, because no, I'm going to no. do my story now. Tell us your story about right. your, your doubt. Right. Yeah? First of all, because I'm finishing on the line and then walking, can <laughs> I thank you so much for allowing me to come on the show. I'd love to come back and talk about the show. Absolutely. Time. Yeah. So, I'm adopted. Uh, my mum died, Hilda May Price, who was my mum, my life, my everything. I then went looking for my real mother. My real mother... Uh, I met, didn't like her. Her first words out of her mouth when she saw me was, don't think you're getting any money. That was the first words out of her mouth. She listened to me on show. She never knew it was me. Uh, I said, I probably can buy and sell you. And the second words out of her mouth was, I am so sorry to bring you into the world with your problems because I'm gay. So didn't really endear to her. Uh, when I, she opened the door, the biggest shock was it was me in a frock, dreadful frock. Never wear the frock. Anyway, she then gave me a photograph of my father. She said that's who my father was. And she said he was a Polish-American GI. I decided to try and find him with what little information I had. Going on a couple of years later, I rang her up one day and said, Grace, 
I'm going on Esther uh, Ranson's show tonight to try and talk about my father. Please don't watch because I don't think you'll like what I'm going to say. She got upset. Um, and we didn't speak regularly, by the way, once every three months. And the only reason I speak to her is I wanted to find out who am, am I, who were my family. And I've got some, met some nice people because of that. So she started getting upset. I started crying, which I've never seen her cry. I'm so sorry. I lied to you. Pardon. I really, I didn't, I didn't, what? I'm your father. What? He's not a Polish-American. Hang on. Whoa, 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 whoa. He's not a Polish-American GI. I'm speaking to Oprah Winfrey in America. I've got adverts out there. I've had a detective on you now telling me he's not my father. Are you, are you being serious? Who is my father? She's, who is my father? She said, an Italian prisoner of war. Man, at Burton Ward, he came over the fence, give me one and went back. Pardon? Yes, he's Sicilian. I'm Sicilian. So everyone listening that knows, not Jewish, Sicilian. <laughs> so I was absolutely flabbergasted. Absolutely beside myself. The money I'd spent out, I couldn't believe you heard nothing yet. The money I spent out, you could not believe it. Anyway, fast forward, I went to Mercury Press, the lovely, lovely Mercury Press with Chris. Chris spoke Italian. I had this unbelievable idea to write, to see if I could find my father in Sicily. Can't make this up. So I wrote to the mafiosa boss in Palermo prison. <laughs> True. He wrote this phenomenal letter, Chris. Thank you, Chris. Bless him. Not with us anymore. Chris and Roger, we lost. Mercury Press, fabulous people. So I wrote this letter. Didn't hear anything back. Two months later, out of the blue, a company, an Italian film company, got in touch with me. Now, I still never established where they got me from. We presume it was him, but we can't ever prove it. Never know. Anyway, long story short, this company said, we have a show called Shella Vista, which was going for years and years in Europe. And apparently they used to find people in Europe uh, for the army and you know, people who were missing in the war. And it was a huge program. It was on a Friday night and that got 15, 20 million viewers years and years ago. But still going. They said that we found your father. Now, even if they'd gone from the letter, there's no way on this earth they could find the father. I hadn't even given them the picture yet. But they came over to Liverpool, a team of six, and filmed me singing at the grapes, doing my radio show. And it was a bit amateurish, but it wasn't. And I wish you could find the film. The film they showed in Liverpool, they made us look sensational. They did such a great job. Cutting the story down, they then invite me on to live television in Italy from the tower. It's Friday night. I am going on. And just before the show, they give me a photo of my father and compare it to my father that I've got a photo of. The difference was well, Trump and Barack Obama. You couldn't get anything so different in your life. Frank. Am I going to miss a television show? <laughs> Don't be so soft. Live television across Europe. So I go on. Picture this. 
Then in the studio and we go live. And look at all the subtitles and then he starts speaking English. Peter, we have found your father. And there's this little old man who is sitting there, an old man, and I've got photos of him, sitting there and he said, what do you want to say to your father? Live television. I went, if you are my pup, I want to come to our village and eat our grapes and drink our wine and taste our tomatoes. Cut! Goes to a break. He has a heart attack on live <laughs> Italian television and he's not even my father. <laughs> the man is beside himself apparently. I don't know what's going on. I'm sitting there and not, I don't know what to say. What do I say? I don't know what to say. What the hell's going on? I then start getting uh, messages from his daughter who follows me on Twitter and wants to know why I deny the family. <laughs> Seriously. And off here, I'll show you the photos. Good looking woman. But she, she evidently thinks I've got a few bob. The end of the story, and this is when I walk out the door, the end of the story is I was then getting emails from all over the world. Hello, I'm your father. Hello, I'm your father. But the best one, hello from Germany. My name is Hans. I'm not your father, but I found you very attractive. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, that is a fantastic way of ending oh, an absolutely incredible uh, podcast. Thank you so much, Pete Price, for being in the downtown den with us today. I hope you've enjoyed it as much as we have. And absolutely the line of the series, probably of any podcast I've ever done, to be fair. So what he did was he jumped over the fence and he gave me one. Anyway, on that note, Pete Price, thanks very much, love. I've got to go now because I'm meeting the German. Stop man, that was fantastic. Thank you. So there you go. That was Pete Price in the downtown den, an absolutely fascinating journey, both in terms of his personal life and, of course, his career. Uh, you will have heard Pete say towards the start of the conversation we had that he'd never been given a downtown in business award. Well, two days after we'd had that conversation, that particular thing was put right. He received the DIB Ambassador Award at our Liverpool Awards Gala Dinner uh, last Thursday night, and he was absolutely thrilled with the award. So congratulations, Pete, on that. Next week, joining me in the downtown den is the former BBC Northwest political editor, Jim Hancock. Jim has reported on politics for four or five decades now, has an absolute library of stories on the personalities that have shaped our generation, on crises and dramas that he's covered in Westminster. Uh, and, uh, of course, he now works with us here at Downtown in Business. So next podcast, next up in the Downtown Den, that's Jim Hancock. Join me, Frank McKenna, the Chief Executive and Group Chair of DIB, with Jim next week.